weeks now, we've been looking at what did Jesus mean when he stood up at the Passover meal with his disciples just before he was crucified. And he made this amazing statement. He said, this is my blood of the new covenant, the new agreement. Um, If you haven't been here for all of that, you can jump on the iTunes and have a listen. But the bottom line is that God had uh, a connection to a nation called Israel. And he had a certain agreement set up with that nation. And when Jesus came... He was changing a lot of things about the way God was doing business with humanity. And we've been uh, chipping away. What are the major changes? What are the differences between God's old agreement with a nation and God's new agreement with individuals? What are the differences? Because we don't want to be people that live in this new agreement, but we're still living with mentalities and so on out of this old agreement and wondering why uh, things aren't working out or why we can't understand God or why God's not doing what we think he should based on what we think he expects of us and so on. So we've been trying to go through, okay, what does it look like being a new uh, person, a new believer, a new creation in the new movement of God, which has a new agreement with God? Um, when, when, when we got a Bible, and I think I asked this a few weeks ago, there's probably nobody, or very few of us in this room, when we were handed our first Bible, probably ever had anybody explain to us that the first three quarters of it, under the title of Old Testament, is about an agreement that God had with a particular nation for a season and a time of human history. But now, us as new believers, we are now under a new agreement, and the New Testament explains the new agreement and gives us the central figure of the new agreement, which is a, a person, a historical person called Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. And Jesus' ethics and Jesus' values are to be central to our faith, and we're to interpret everything else we read in the light of who Jesus is and what Jesus taught. Many of us still try to take Jesus, and we're trying to interpret who Jesus is, what he says and teaches, in line of the old agreement that God had with man. The old agreement was a works-based law agreement with a splattering of grace here and there. This new agreement is a grace-based agreement with just little splatterings of, of the, the, the wrath of God and, and the anger of God. The old was wrath with a little bit of grace. The new is grace with the occasional bit of God's anger and frustration that we see in the pages and the letters and the history that we have of God's interaction. But it's a totally different agreement. And so we've been chipping away and looking at what are the differences in this agreement because we want to be, if we want to see God do what God wants to do in planet Earth in 2019 under this new agreement, then we want to be people that understand that agreement. We want to be lining our lives up with that agreement and walking in that because there's life in the new agreement of God, but there's death in the old. If we're trying to live out of an old agreement that has been null and voided, uh, it'll be frustrating for each and every one of us. We will never walk into the promises of God. We'll never walk into what God has for us. And most importantly, we'll never have peace with God because peace with God is outlined in this new agreement. And it's a different way of getting that peace than what the uh, nation of Israel had to find peace under the old agreement. Uh, excuse me. Ephesians tells us this. It says that by grace we've been saved through faith. What that means is this. Under the old agreement, it was uh, not grace that saved you through the vehicle of faith. You were saved by works through what you did. In other words, if you obeyed God and did everything right, you were saved. God's blessing was upon you. God's favor was upon you. So under the old agreement, you were saved by, by works through what you did. Under the new, we're saved by grace through belief in what he did. The death of Jesus Christ on the cross. We're saved by faith. We're saved by what we believe, not what we do. Under the old, it didn't matter what you believed. It was really what you did. All God was looking at was that you're crossing your eyes and dotting your T's. 
And if you are, you'll get blessed. And if you're not, then you'll get cursed. And the blessing and the cursing came from the same God. Under the new, Jesus makes it very clear under this new agreement that, that this new agreement is based on not what we do, but it's based upon what he's done for us. And he also makes it very, very clear that we are in this beautiful season of grace right now where God is wanting to love people, not judge them. God is wanting to love people. He's wanting to pour out favor upon them. We live in what Jesus referred to as the acceptable year of the Lord. In Luke chapter 4, when Jesus stood up in the synagogue and gave his first ever public address, it was basically his way of coming out and saying, okay, I'm beginning my three-year ministry that's documented by these eyewitnesses in this book called the New Testament. He gets up and he opens up the scroll from the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 61 and he goes through and he quotes this uh, Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he's anointed me to preach and proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set um, open the prison doors and set captives free and so on. And then he says, and to, to declare, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord... And then he stops mid-sentence. If you go back to the original document, it goes to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. But Jesus deliberately stops short because now is not the day of vengeance of God. Now is the acceptable year of the Lord. We live in the acceptable, favorable time of God where God's heart is reaching out to people and he's wanting to reveal himself to people. He's not wanting to hammer us down for making mistakes and doing things wrong. He's not out there judging the nations of the earth. A time for judgment will come. But right now we're not living in the day of judgment of our God. We're living in the acceptable day of God. We're living in the year of favor of the Lord. That's exciting. That's, we could have been born in any period of human history. We were born in the acceptable year of the Lord. That's exciting. That's great. And so we want to live with an understanding of what that means. We want to live in the acceptable year of the Lord. I don't want to live under the the, 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 the times of judgment. I don't want to live my life the way Israel did in fear of God. If I make a mistake, he's going to club me. <laughs> and if I want to get a blessing out of him, I've got to do something really good. It's a tit-for-tat relationship here. That's not the relationship that we have right now. So we've been chipping our way through that. And what I've been trying to do last week and this week and probably next week, we'll tie it up, is try to just pull in some cords of all the things we've been talking about for the last eight weeks. So last week we looked at uh, the first two uh, distinguishing things, the differences between the old and the new. And the first one was that the old agreement was between God and a nation. The new agreement is between God and individuals of every nation. The second point we looked at last week was that Israel, under the old agreement, Israel, God's people rose on the back of their great faith in God. In other words, when they had faith in God, things went well. When they turned away from God, chased other gods, stopped obeying, things went south in a really major dramatic way. So under the old agreement, God's people rose on the back of their great faith in God. But under the new agreement, the church rises on the back of God's great faith in us. God's great faith in us. Aren't you glad that when Jesus Christ was, excuse me, was taken in the Garden of Eden, he'd spent three years with these guys, walking around with these disciples, these followers, investing his life, trying to get them to see who he was and what he was about. And in his moment of need, when they came to the garden and they took him away, what did they do? They turned and ran. They ran. Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't resurrect and go up to them and go, you guys blew it. You blew it. Wasn't that a waste of my time? Three years for what? He didn't do that. He pulled them together and he said, hey, look at the nail scars. Look at the holes in my hands. Look at the holes in my feet. And then he left them with this command, go into all the world and tell the world. Aren't you glad that they did that? 
And, and the only reason they did that was because God did not say, well, that was a waste of time. You guys just aren't up to speed, and I'm going to punish you just like I would of Israel under the old agreement. If Israel disobeyed God, what happened? They were cursed. They were punished. Why did God not punish these guys? You know why? Because Jesus was saying and showing us all, this is a totally new agreement now. It doesn't work like that anymore. Under the old, yeah, you guys would have been smitten by the great almighty smiter. But under the new, no, no, there's grace and there's love for your shortcomings and your failings. Because God has great faith in you and God has great faith in me. The church wouldn't exist today in the world. There would not be a movement of God if it fell totally on the back of us humans. Because we're just not good enough, smart enough, committed enough, focused enough. The, the church would not be the movement that it is. But God has continued to have faith in people like you and me. That's exciting. I find that exciting that God today in heaven has faith in me, has faith in you. He believes in, in, in the goodness inside of you. He believes that even with all your shortcomings and failings, you can leave a fingerprint for human history, a fingerprint for the kingdom of God during your time here on earth. I find that exciting. That's good. Third, I want to move on to the third one this morning. The third one is this. The old agreement calls for legal requirements to be met. The new calls for loving responses to be made. The old calls for legal requirements to be met. You had to do certain things. Israel had to do certain things. There were a bunch of legal requirements, rules and regulations that Israel had to follow. The old agreement was based upon the the meeting of legal requirements. The old called for legal requirements to be met, but the new calls for loving responses to be made. Instead of meeting legal requirements externally just doing and performing like circus monkeys and nice, attractive, pretty, well-groomed circus monkeys. This new agreement calls for loving responses. Instead of us doing things from the outside, God's now interested in what's going on in here because whatever's going on out there is coming from in here. You know, under the old agreement, God could not uh, cohabitate with sin. God could not place his spirit inside a person under the old agreement. You know why? Because sin was not dealt with and God cannot cohabitate with sin. The pureness and the holiness of God could never cohabitate with sin. So we go back and we look at the old agreement and the Spirit of God did not dwell inside people until after Jesus came and Jesus dealt with sin and took sin away from mankind. Now those of us that call upon him that believe in his sacrificial death that it took place for us, we can now be filled with the Spirit of God. God's Spirit can come and dwell on the inside of us. And when God's Spirit gets inside of you, He does things inside of you. And instead of doing things out of legal requirements, all of a sudden we find ourselves doing things out of loving responses to God because of the love we have. Not legal requirements to get Him to, to love me, to get Him to be favorable. They're loving responses because I'm safe and secure in the fact I already have His love. I already have the love and the grace of God. Um, Go to Luke chapter 19 for me. I just want to read the story of Zacchaeus real quick. We all know this story. It's a great story. (coughs) Zacchaeus is the tiny, tiny little man that had to climb up a tree to see Jesus because he was just too tiny and despised and people didn't like him. Anyone short in this room? Anyone? Any short people here? Any short people here? We've got a couple of short people. You know what? Jesus loves short people. And if anyone says they don't, you just talk about Zacchaeus. Jesus loves short people. Zacchaeus entered, uh, Jesus enters and passes through Jericho. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector and he was rich. He was despised by people. He was a Jew, but he was working for the Romans. The Romans were using him to pilfer taxes out of the Jews. And because of his position, he was able to take advantage of that. So he's ripping more money out of his own people than he could. The Jews hated him because he's working for the Romans. Romans hated him because he was a Jew. It was a lose-lose situation. And top it all off, he was small. He was small. I don't know what the significance of that is. I just want to point it out. He was small. 
And he sought to see who Jesus was, but he couldn't because of the crowd, for he was short of stature. Small. So he ran ahead and he climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. He knew Jesus was going down that street, so he races ahead. He preempts where Christ was going to be. He goes, I'll climb that tree there before the crowds get here, and I can't get up the tree. So he beat the crowd there, and he gets up the tree. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up. Jesus stops, looks up, and he saw him, and he said, Zacchaeus, make haste, come down, for today I must stay at your house. So he made haste, and he came down, and he received him joyfully. But when they saw it, who's they? It's all the other religious people. When they saw what Jesus was doing, when they saw that Jesus was going to go to Zacchaeus' house, I mean, think of Jesus. Didn't you see all the other people that were lined up? Didn't you see all the other well-affluent, well-to-do, well-meaning, righteous people that were lined up that you could have gone to anyone's house? We would have gladly taken you in for a meal, but you invited yourself to the house of a filthy sinner. You invited yourself to Zacchaeus' house. And so they start judging and criticizing him. And then Zacchaeus, when he's in the house with Jesus, all of a sudden this thing happens. Zacchaeus stands up and he says, Look, Lord, I gave half, I, I give half my goods to the poor, and if I've taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he also was a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus comes into Zacchaeus' personal space. That's what he does. He sees Zacchaeus in the tree, he calls him down, and then Jesus goes and ends up in Zacchaeus' personal space. That's what his home is. It's his personal space. And when Jesus goes into Zacchaeus' personal space, something happens in the life of Zacchaeus. Jesus didn't give Zacchaeus any rules, didn't give him any regulations. Jesus didn't sit him down and go, now I want to tell you all the wrong things you're doing and all the disgusting things. I want to tell you about all the sin in your life. Jesus didn't sit him down and hand Zacchaeus a rule book and say, if you follow these rules, your life will be better. Jesus went into Zacchaeus' space, and we don't know what happened. All we know is this. The presence of Jesus in Zacchaeus' personal space led to transformation of Zacchaeus. And when Jesus comes into our personal space, he transforms us. Jesus, there's no uh, picture here or recollection of Zacchaeus running ahead of Jesus. Now, how many of us would have done this? Zacchaeus, you're coming to my house for lunch. It's wonderful. Uh, Jesus, it's great. Can you just wait there for a second? I'm just going to run inside and just make sure it's tidy, you know. There's a couple of magazines I've got to put away. I don't want you seeing them. There's a, there's a, uh, oh, that room over there is really dirty. I haven't even got, I'm going to close that door there. I'm going to clean up this. I'm going to make, oh, you, you can't be here. Jesus is coming. You need to get out of my house. Quick, back door, go, run, take off. How many of us would have felt the need to run into our personal space and clean it up first? But see, maybe Jesus didn't give Zacchaeus the option to do that. It says they made haste and they took off. Maybe Jesus just rushed in really quickly because he wanted Zach to know, I want you to be secure, Zacchaeus. Whatever is in there, I'm not going to be offended by it. I'm not going to be shocked by it. I'm not going to turn my nose up at it. I'm not going to reject you. I'm not going to change my decision to come into your house just because there might be some stuff in there. Zacchaeus, I want to come into your house exactly how it is. 
I don't expect you to clean up and get the vacuum out and do the dishes and wash everything and put everything away and make the bed. And t- I'm not looking for that, Zacchaeus. I just want to come into your personal space and be with you. I just want to be with you. And as a result of Jesus walking into that personal space as it was, transformation took place in the life of Zacchaeus. This is a great picture of what we call this new agreement. And the new agreement is not legal requirements being made. It's loving responses. I can imagine Zacchaeus sitting there looking at Jesus, sitting at the table, having a cup of coffee with him, eating a hot dog, whatever it was that they had on the menu back in those days, sitting there eating a falafel or some naan bread or something. And he's got this other group of people looking at Jesus going, do you understand? Why would you go to the house of a filthy scumbag like that? Why would you sit with that sinner? He's got these voices in the peripheral. He knows what they're saying to Jesus. He knows they're saying to Jesus, you shouldn't be there. But Jesus didn't care. He's there anyway. And when he looks at the crowd and then he looked at Christ, something happened inside of his life where he went, you know what? I'm going to change. I'm going to change. You know what? He didn't even say I'm going to change. He just got up and was changed. He was changed by the presence of Jesus in his personal space. And that's what the new agreement is about. It's about Jesus coming into our personal space and he is the change agent. It's not a self-help program where Jesus says, now, you need to do this, do that. Let's get rid of the old rules and laws. I'm just going to give you a bunch of new rules and laws. It's still rules and laws. It's still all about your effort and your performance. It's not about that. He says, let me come into your personal space. And if you let me come into that space, I will transform you. You will be changed. Christianity is not a self-help program. It's realizing that we can't help ourselves. That is the story of the nation of Israel. They just couldn't help themselves. They did good, they did bad, they didn't they couldn't help themselves. They needed God. And every one of us need God to come and take up residence in our personal space. And if you're here and you've given your life to Jesus, that's what you've done. Effectively, you've opened up the doors and you've said, Jesus, come on into my personal space. If you've got little rooms where the door's locked, let me encourage you this morning. Unlock the doors. He's not going to care. He's not going to be shocked by what he sees in the door in the room. But he wants to get in there. You know why? Because he's just got this knack of looking around and going, eh, we can work on this. We're all works in progress. None of us are perfect. And none of us are going to get there because we've reached a certain point of perfection in our own personal life. It's it's not going to happen. You know, when we die on a holiness scale, let's let's imagine we we're all a bomb was to land on this building right now on a holiness scale of, of one to a hundred. Um, Jackie, you'd probably be ninety nine. Should be ninety nine, <laughs> huh? Paul Worth, Paul, you reckon you're a one, a two, maybe a two? You said that, not me. You know. Maybe Bevan's a 63. Tim over the corner there might be a 70. Oh, no, up, down, he's going, that's, okay, he might be a 70. Well, we'd all be on a different scale, but guess what? We're all going to stand before him because it's not based on our merits, our efforts, or how far we've progressed on the journey. It's based upon the grace of God. Isn't that exciting? Isn't that great to know? You're as saved today as you're ever going to be. 
Now it doesn't, but here, but, but the beautiful thing is this, that when we understand what God wants to do, when we understand that Jesus wants to come into our life, he wants to walk into that personal space, he begins a process of transformation. He does begin a process of transformation. We are going, the Bible says, from glory to glory. We're being transformed. We're being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus got into a lot of trouble because he was just not a legalistic dude. You know, he got in trouble for healing the wrong people. You know, because, and, and you've got to understand, under the old agreement, now that person's got that sickness. There's a reason why. Don't interfere with, with it. You know, these people are in trouble. And Jesus would hang out with the wrong people. And he'd, he'd, he'd hang out with them in the wrong places. And he'd do it on the wrong days of the week and the wrong times of the day. I mean, he just had this knack of getting under the nose of anyone that had legalism in them. I saw a cartoon recently and it was a, a Jesus that was dressed uh, as a, a Jewish uh, teacher, a rabbi. He was dressed as a rabbi uh, as you would as a representation of, of Jesus, of God under the old agreement with the nation of Israel. And he's dressed and he's on a mobile phone. And, he's, and he's, he's talking to him on his mobile phone and he's talking to the nation of Israel and he's going, yep, no, that's, that's, that's exactly right. You, yep, you are my people and I am your God. And, and if, if you need anything, I mean anything, anything at all, you just give me a call. I am available 24-6. I thought that was funny. I'm available 24-6. And so when Jesus would heal on the Sabbath, the wrong day of the week, of course it couldn't be God, because God's only available 24-6. That has to be the devil. So Jesus was not legalistic because he wasn't bringing another form of legalism to planet Earth. He was trying to give us a new agreement, creating a new people with a new focus. And that focus is Jesus and his teachings, not Moses and all the laws and all that stuff. You see, under the old agreement, Israel obeyed God's commands for two primary motivations. There were two main motivations as to why they obeyed God. Number one was a fear of punishment. Under the old agreement, you've got to obey God or you will be punished. So they obeyed God out of a fear of punishment. You know, who wants to get on the wrong side almighty smiter? You know? You've seen God do a few things. After a while, you're thinking, dude, I do not want to get on his bad side. Anyone ever been on the bad side of the wrong person? Huh? Anyone ever been around that kind of a person? You get on their bad side, you fear of making a mistake, so you're walking on eggshells, you just can't put a foot wrong, say a word wrong, get it wrong, have an inclination wrong, look wrong, think wrong, because you just know it's going to come. Some of us have been in a relationship like that. What would we call a relationship like that? We would call it unhealthy. We would call it unhealthy. Well, this was one of the primary motivations that Israel had for obeying God. It was fear of being punished if we get it wrong. What do you think the world must think about God? In 2019, if they look at a church, and the church, our relationship to God is one based on fear of punishment. We only do the right thing. We avoid the wrong thing because we're afraid of being punished by God. What sort of image does that give the world of God? What sort of God works like that? Well, here's the thing. Under the old agreement, yes, God had a relationship with a nation and it operated that way, but there was a purpose. And we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. It was so that God's name would be glorified and the nations would see God, the one true God, interacting with a group of people. And they would see the results of obeying God and walking with God. But the motivation of Israel, the first one was fear of punishment. The second motivation of Israel was the expectation of blessing. We obeyed God because we expected blessing. Why? Because that's what God said to them. If you do these things, 
all these blessings will come upon you. If you don't, all these curses will come upon you. So their relationship was based on two primary motivations. Fear of punishment, if we get it wrong, and expectation of extreme blessing every time we get it right. Both of these motivations were about result, not relationship. Both of these motivations were about an end result, but there was no intimacy of relationship involved in that. Under the new agreement, called to loving responses, responding to the love that God has given to us. And all that we do comes out of loving responses, not out of a fear of punishment, not out of an expectation even of blessing. You know, some years back I was, I was preaching in a church and I was doing a giving talk, a financial giving talk. And those of you that come to, to, to arise here, you know that we don't, we don't talk a lot about it or family members here. There's a letterbox there. You know that's where the finance goes. Do we need finances? Yes, we do. Every church, organization, charity, they need financial uh, assistance to do the things that they're called to do and so on. So we make no apologies about it. We just don't talk about it all the time. But I remember getting up in this church and they were, it was a church that every week was giving offering talks every single week. And I remember as I stood up this day to give a giving talk and the Lord spoke very clearly to me and I've never forgot it. In fact, I've got a little piece of paper that's been in my Bible for the last probably 20 odd years because I wrote it down and I left it in there. And the Lord said this to me, he said in terms of giving and receiving, because I mean, I've heard preachers go, if you need a thousand dollars, give a hundred. You ever heard that stuff? Give a hundred, because God will give you tenfold back. So you're sitting there doing the mathematics, going, what's the blessing I need? I need this, so I better give you this, because the expectation is I'll get... I mean, it's ridiculous, but people buy it. Faiths are ruined all around the world by this ridiculous teaching. But the Lord said this to me. He said, in terms of giving, receiving, getting back, and God blessing you and stuff, he said, in terms of the blessing of God, he said, let it be an expectation, but never let it be a motivation. I can expect, when I do the right thing, I, I, I have an expectation that God will bless me. But I'm not motivated to do the right thing because I'm expecting some result from God. I'm motivated by the fact that, you know what, as, as incompetent, as, as bad as what I am, there's a God in heaven that loves me with an everlasting love. There's a God in heaven who has thrown my sin as far as the east is from the west. There's a God in heaven that neither height nor depth, nor angels nor demons, nor past nor present nor future, nor anything can separate me from his love. Because I have that love, because I am secure in that love, I want to do the things that I do. I don't do the things I do in order to try to get some result out of God. The result is God's business. I expect that there will be a blessing. But you know what? God, it's your, it's your job to work out what that blessing looks like in my life. I'm not, I'm not under the old agreement anymore where they could ratify and very clearly say, if we do this, we get this result. It's different now because you know what? I'm not about results. I'm about relationship. God's called me to a relationship, a, a, an agreement that's based on a relationship between me and him. So I pray because I want to pray. I don't pray because I have to pray. I pray because I want to pray. And if you pray because you have to pray, then let me tell you something. There's a part of you that's still living out of this old agreement. You don't have to pray. I pray because I want to pray. You know why I want to pray? Because God, who's given that love to me, has transformed my life, who accepts me, warts and all, failures, successes, the works, that God that loves me and is for me and is not against me based on who I am, not how I've performed or what I've done, that God wants relationship with me. Man, who doesn't want to speak to that God? 
Why would I not want to communicate with that God? Why would I not want to take time to sit and listen quietly and allow him to download and to speak back to me? If I had a person in my world, a tangible person that has a relationship like that with me, guess what? I want to be around that person. I'm not going to push them off to the peripheral of my life. I want to be around that person. So I don't pray because I have to. I pray because I want to. It's a loving response, not a legal requirement. It's a loving response to God for all that he's done. I read the Bible not because I have to, not because it's a legal requirement. I read this book because in the pages of this book, I get to see the life of Jesus. I get to see the things that he did, the miracles he performed, the stuff he taught. I get to see his values. I see the way he treated people. I understand the ethics of the kingdom of God. I understand what this new agreement looks like and what it's meant to feel like and who I should be in the middle of it. That's why I read my Bible. I don't read my Bible as some legal requirement. And if I do it, I get a blessing. I read it out of a loving response to a blessing that I already received. Ephesians, Paul writes to the Ephesian church in Ephesians chapter 1, I think it is. And he says, he says, we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing there is in the heavenly places in Jesus. We have every spiritual blessing available has been poured out upon us already. And it was given to us through the death of Jesus Christ. And part of our discipleship process is coming to grips with that and understanding it more and more and more. But I'm so blessed, it's unbelievable. Not because I own a house or I've got a a, a family or I, I could have all that taken from me, I would still be blessed. I would still be blessed. Because I've been blessed by God beyond just this natural world. We don't gather together because we have to. It's not a legal requirement for us to get together on a Sunday. If you don't want to get together on a Sunday and it's your choice not to, God's not going to hate you. I don't gather with you because I have to. There's no rule that says I have to do. I gather with you. Well, you're probably looking at me going, you gather here because you work for the church and you've got to. But, you know, <laughs> I think you're a great bunch of people. And even if I wasn't working, guess what? I'd come to this church because I just think you're great people. I want to gather with you because I want to be with you. I want to get together with people that think along the lines of the way that Jesus wants us to think, that live along the lines of the way Jesus wants us to live, that that speak the way that Jesus wants us to speak, that love the way Jesus wants us to love. I want to be around those people, not because I have to. It's not a legal requirement. It's because I want to. It's a loving response to the work that God has done in my life. It's a loving response to the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ and the fact that he accepts me. I want to be around his people. We don't serve because we have to. There's no legal requirement. I can't give you a passage in the Bible that tells you that you, you know, you should, thou shalt do morning tea on thou rosters that arise prepareth. It's not in the Bible. There's nothing there that says that. Okay? And even when the Bible says we should serve one another, the New Testament is not dishing out a new bunch of rules. It's just saying, hey, as a loving response to God, we should love one another. As a loving response to God, we should pray. As a loving response to God, we should serve each other. As a loving response, by the way, even though there's no legal requirement for you to serve, if you make morning tea in here, I'm going to say to you, I want you to do it anyway, regardless of what anyone else thinks. I want you to do it because our morning tea is amazing and everyone comments about how great it is. So just scrap that point if you're a morning tea person. That's, That's not for the morning tea people. We witness, we tell people about Christ, not because it's a legal requirement. What do you think was going through the minds of the disciples when Jesus stood in front of them, Matthew 28, and said, go into all the world, preach the gospel? Do you think they were standing there with a, yes, sir, army commander attitude? Or do you think that they knew we blew it? We ran in our master's hour of need. We took off and we left him alone. And even when he puts his hands and his feet out, it's like seeing me resurrected is not enough. And Thomas was not the only one. You can read it. Everybody got their chance to put their finger in the holes in his hand and his feet because they still didn't believe. They still didn't believe. 
Jesus didn't reject them. He made them a barbecue breakfast on the beach. Spent time with them. I reckon when he stood up and said those final words, go into all the world and preach the gospel, I reckon they were standing there going, we're so overwhelmed with love for this guy. Why didn't you, why didn't you just wipe your hands off us? Why didn't you just go, that was three years of waste of my life. What a failure. Do you think they heard a command? Or do you think they looked at him and heard him say that and out of a loving response for what he had done for them, they went, we can't help but tell. We're going to go and tell people about this loving Jesus. We're going to go and tell people about God. Mark 12, verse 31 to 32, Jesus is kind of backed into a corner by a bunch of religious people. You know? What's the greatest commandment? In other words, we've got our legal requirement list here. What's the most important list in the legal requirement lists? And here's what Jesus says. Verse 31 to 32, he says, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. He didn't say you shall serve the Lord your God. He didn't say you shall obey the Lord your God. He said the greatest commandment is this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. This is the first commandment, and the second, like it, is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. They said, give us one commandment. What's the number one? And Jesus says, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm not going to give you a list of, of the hierarchy of legal requirements. What I'm going to tell you is this. Whatever you do, let it be done out of a motivation and a compulsion of love. Let me rephrase it in the New Allen version. The greatest commandment is not about legal requirements, but loving responses. A loving response towards God, a loving response towards others, and a loving response towards yourself. Loving responses, not legal requirements. This new move of God, this new people of God, we're to be marked by loving responses, not legal requirements. We've moved past legal requirements. God doesn't want a bunch of obedient servants. He wants children. He wants relationship with people, and he wants to get into those private, personal spaces of our world and transform us and change us. Just in closing, why is it that we can have something that Israel didn't have. How do we get to the place where we're operating out of loving responses and not legal requirements? How are we able to do it? How do we do something that it appears Israel were actually incapable of doing? The reason being, we've got two things that Israel as a nation never had under the old agreement. The first one was we have the Holy Spirit within us. We've already talked about that. We had the Holy Spirit within us under the old agreement. The Spirit of God came upon kings, priests, prophets, came upon them for a purpose and a reason, and they would do something. King Saul's a great example. The Spirit of God comes upon Saul, and guess what happens? Saul was anointed king, and then all of a sudden he starts disobeying God. And what happens? Samuel comes and says, God has removed his spirit from you. You're not the king anymore. There's a dude called David who's now the king. And the Spirit of God would come upon for a purpose and then would be taken away. Come upon and be taken away. Why? Because sin had not been dealt with yet. So the Spirit of God could never dwell inside anyone. This is why it's so amazing when Joel, the prophet, stands up and says, there's coming a day where I'll pour out my Spirit on all flesh. All flesh. Everybody's going to get this. They're already thinking that's new. That's not how it's always been. That's new. Ezekiel 36, 26, 27, Ezekiel talks about what it's going to look like in this new agreement. He says, I'll give you a new heart and I'll put a new Spirit within you and I'll take the heart of stone out of your flesh and I'll give you a heart of flesh. 
You'll be able to feel again. I'm going to bring you alive, make you alive. And I'll put my spirit where? Within you. This is a radical thought. When Ezekiel's saying this, when he's prophesying this, this is a radical thought that is beyond the scope of what they understand because according to them, God does not go. He does not dwell inside of a human being. He cannot cohabitate with sin. And sin has not been dealt with. And he says, I will put my spirit within you and I'm going to cause you to walk in my statutes. You'll keep my judgments and do them. I'm going to be the cause of it. What is he saying? It's going to be loving responses. It's going to change you. Not legal requirements, not external things where you're forcing yourself to live a certain way. Internal changes, legal requirements. The second thing that we have that Israel didn't have is this. We have received the unconditional love of God. Israel never had the unconditional love of God. When they did good, what? They were blessed. When they didn't, that's not unconditional. That's not unconditional. That's why today, when, when something bad goes on in a Christian's life or something, don't you dare look across at them and wonder, oh, what sin have you committed? You're thinking old. You're thinking old. Oh, they must have done something really bad because they're, you know. <laughs> no, you're thinking old. Old agreement. Under the new agreement, that's not how it works. That's not how it works. 1 John 4.10 says this. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. Sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Love comes not from just me to God. I can only love God to the really to the degree that I understand he loves me. And I can only let love work out through me to the degree that I accept the love that God has for me. We love because he loves us. A couple of verses on in verse 19 it says we love him. Why? Because he first loved us. In John 8, the woman committed a in a court in adultery. What's going on here? Again, they're coming to him saying, Jesus, we caught this woman in the very act of adultery. The law says, here's the legal requirement, Jesus, that she should be killed. And what does Jesus do? He's so beautiful in the way he responds. He says, right, yeah, fair enough. We want to do it that way. That's great. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm only going to give, I need one of you in this massive crowd holding a stone right now. I want one of you without sin. You start, you start hailing down the glory. If there's somebody here without sin, you can throw the first stone and you'll get away with it. Go for it. And he sits back and what happens? One by one they drop their stones and they walk away. Now if a Pharisee had been there, you know what a Pharisee would have said? Dead right, start slinging. Who cares about the heart? And then Jesus says this amazing thing to her. Everybody leaves and there's Jesus standing there with her and Jesus says to her, he says, where are your accusers? And she looks around and she says to Jesus, there's none left. Everyone's gone. And then Jesus says this thing to her. He says, neither do I condemn you. You go and sin no more. Notice he didn't say, go and sin no more, and then I won't condemn you. He said, I don't condemn you. Now go and sin no more. There's something powerful about understanding and accepting the love of God in your life. In that moment, I can imagine her standing there going, you mean you don't condemn me? What I've just done, you're not condemning me? That message, that truth would have empowered her to walk away and go, you know what, I can beat this thing. I mean, if if that's how you see me, there's something about the power of love at work in our lives that helps us, compels us to change and compels us to walk the path that we need to walk. 
You know, at the end of the Zacchaeus story, Zacchaeus goes, I'm going to sell everything, give it to the poor, and I'm going to pay back everybody fourfold. You know, there was an actual legal requirement back in the day if you'd rip people off. The legal requirement was this, you paid them back what you stole plus 20%. That was the legal requirement. Zacchaeus effectively, without being told nothing, said to Jesus, I'm going to pay back 40, 400, I think it was. Without being told, without being given a law, he went above and beyond legal requirement. And that's the power of love. When you let the love of God transform you from the inside out, you won't need a real book. Because the power of love transports us well and truly above and beyond what any law ever could. Love aims higher than just looking good. It wants to be good. Love aims higher than just looking holy. It wants to live holy. Love aims higher than just looking righteous. It wants to walk in righteousness. That's the power of love. Love propels us beyond simple obedience to rules. And that's what this new agreement is about. It's about letting the love of God get on the inside of us. Let me just close with these couple of questions. And you can have a think about this. Do you worship a demanding master or a loving father? Is he a demanding master? Holding out the rule book? ticking and flicking when you perform or is he a loving father with grace what's your image of God does your Christian experience consist of legal requirements or loving responses are you like Israel I'm, I'm afraid of getting it wrong so out of fear of punishment I walk the line and I do all the right things or maybe it's out of expectation of blessing well, God, I'm expecting, so I walk this line out of expectation of blessing. But again, it's all based on your performance and based on what you do. And finally, what changes have occurred as a result of Jesus coming into your personal space? What changes have taken place in your world as a result of Jesus walking into your personal space in your heart? Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, that we could have been born at any time in human history, and but we were born now. And we're here for such a time as this, Lord. And God, thank you so much for this new agreement. This new agreement that where you call upon loving responses, Lord, not legal requirements. Lord, I just pray for each person in this room today, God, that you would search our hearts. And that, Father, you would continue to take us on this journey. Let us be honest with ourselves about our relationship with you and our relationship with others. Let us be honest, Lord about how we see you and about how we think you see us. And in that space of honesty, Lord, I pray you'd minister to us and you'd speak to us and you'd tweak and you'd change. And Father, we thank you for the death, the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. And we thank you that you did all of that for us so intentionally when we had absolutely no interest in you whatsoever. Yet you loved us that much in that time. And Father, I pray that, uh, Lord, as we go from this place today, Lord, I pray in the next seven days, would you give each of us here a chance to tell somebody out there this wonderful, wonderful message of the grace and the love of God for their life. Lord, somebody that needs to hear it this week, God, I pray, let us come across their path and let us share with them the grace and the love of Jesus Christ. Everybody said? Amen. Amen. Bless you guys. Enjoy the rest of your week. Thank you for turning up today, the A Church. I'll be sure not to let next, next, next week, if you're here next week and the rest of them turn up, 
just so you know, I'm going to say they're the A church too, but you'll know the, you'll know the truth.